current global emission rates, according to the IPCC latest report, the 1.5C budget will be depleted in six years and the 2C budget in 18 years. Um, and if you take that 1.5C budget and you distribute it per capita globally, that means that we are allowed per person between now and 2050, only about one ton of carbon dioxide per person. Uh, and yet globally, we're currently uh, putting into the atmosphere about six times that. In North America, almost 20 times that. That's Professor Michael Howard from the University of Maine in the United States. He was one of the many speakers who joined virtually at the Basic Income Earth Network 2022 Congress at the University of Queensland in Australia. I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations, and this is the latest episode. Welcome. It's so great to have you on board. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Join me as we listen to Professor Howard at the 2022 Basic Income Earth Network Congress in Brisbane. The challenge we all face from climate change is how to keep the global temperature from rising beyond 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels without locking hundreds of millions of people in extreme poverty and without imposing painful austerity on the most vulnerable in wealthier countries. This is a matter of justice, but also of political feasibility, because if we don't attend to uh, what we owe to the least advantaged among us, we will not get the necessary cooperation uh, to solve the climate problems. Um, the genesis of this paper uh, is it's a response to a question that was posed to me by Philippe von Parais at a paper I gave uh, for Louvain Laneuve uh, uh, earlier this year. And the question had to do with the compatibility of work time reduction and global justice obligations. That paper, um, I was arguing for several things. I argued that basic income and in response to climate change involves two policies. First, carbon pricing and dividends, which would yield a kind of partial basic income. And then beyond that, ecological basic income to support work time reduction and work sharing, and thereby reduce demand for energy, which would come closer to a full basic income. Um, as Philippe has argued many, uh, many times, the old strategy for creating employment and distributing in income involved growing the economy and investing in jobs. This has been faltering for many years, and it also collides with environmental limits to growth, notably global warming, but also other forms of environmental overreach. Um, the strategy we need now is will rely less on growth and more on redistribution. Uh, in other words, a basic income for distributive justice and a robust climate change policy. Um, the question that was put to me about work time reduction is, do we really want to uh, reduce work uh, and then just sit back and enjoy the sweet life? Uh, or should we frame this as consuming less in the global north, but continuing our work effort? Uh, and Philippe is a uh, uh, developed that argument further in a paper earlier this year, and I believe it was the looked like the content of his address uh, earlier 
in the conference. Uh, in his own words, um, consuming less in the global north does not mean producing less in the global, global north because production in the north must help fund consumption in the south. Consequently, there is no realistic scenario for global justice that can dispense with massive financial transfers from the north to the south. I completely agree with that assessment. And just to elaborate, uh, remind everybody that the historical emissions of carbon dioxide have been predominantly from North America and Europe, and they have left very little in the way of a carbon budget for either 1.5 or 2 degrees centigrade. Um, in particular, at current global emissions rates, according to the IPCC latest report, the 1.5 C budget will be depleted in six years and the 2 C budget in 18 years. Um, and if you take that 1.5 C budget and you distribute it per capita globally, that means that we are allowed per person between now and 2050, only about one ton of carbon dioxide per person. Uh, and yet globally, we're currently uh, putting into the atmosphere about six times that. In North America, almost 20 times that. Um, so what is a fair share of the remaining carbon budget? Um, Peter Singer has argued for that equal per capita shares where everybody would get 1.1 tons per capita per year. Um, but at that rate, even sub-Saharan Africa would need to make, make significant uh, emissions cuts. Um, the problem with equal, equal per capita shares is that it ignores all that past pollution. It also ignores ability to pay, and it leaves too little room for development out of poverty an injustice which developing countries simply will not accept. Um, therefore, wealthy countries must assume even more responsibility than equal per capita shares because of their past emissions and because of ability to pay with minimal suffering. Um, now, um, if you calculate what that equal per capita share uh, would be, it would come to about uh, the US, which is um, uh, puts in 14% of CO2 emissions annually, a fair share would be about 37% responsibility for global emissions. Um, and that means that the United States would have to reduce its emissions by about 190% uh, between now and 2030. And it's very difficult to reduce emissions uh, by more than 100%. Um, the way that the the obligation for the united states would have to be met uh, is to reduce emissions as much as we can but then pay the cost of emissions reductions elsewhere um, the organization u.s fair shares which has uh, used the same uh, modeling implement that i've been using has argued that we should try to reduce emissions in the united states by about 70 percent by 2030, which is considerably beyond what's been pledged, and then assume responsibility for even more emissions reductions in other parts of the world, uh, in places like China and particularly India. This will involve very large cash transfers from the United States. Estimates vary considerably, but even the lowest estimate is about 57 billion per year, up to a high of about half a trillion. Um, and reasonable estimates can be found in between. Uh, the Biden administration's 
uh, current pledge by 2024 is only a fraction even of the smallest of those estimates. Um, now, the problem for work time reduction, in addition to taking into account our global obligation, has to do with threats to productivity. If we restrict fossil fuel use, as Philippe von Parijs has argued, we will necessarily, other things equal, uh, decrease labor productivity. And therefore, more labor will be needed for the same amount of goods. Another way to put that is more labor will be needed to produce a given level of GDP out of which a UBI is funded. And a decline in work effort would mean an even lower UBI. Um, as Philippe concludes, uh, faced with the prospect of falling productivity, therefore, we cannot nonchalantly respond that we shall work less and relax, contenting ourselves with a lower level of consumption. If we believe in global justice, the degrowth of northern consumption should rather be combined with whatever additional efforts are needed to prevent falling productivity to show in falling production. Introducing an unconditional basic income in this context does not exactly seem the soundest thing to do. Um, he points out a couple of mitigating factors to this conclusion. Automation may more than compensate for productivity losses. And UBI may itself enhance productivity as a sort of venture capital for people if it is combined with lifelong learning and promotion of local communities. But it is clear that the position he's arguing for, uh, we envision a, an ecological basic income not as something that simply um, facilitates la dolce vita. Um, the question I ask here is, is it politically feasible to ask working people to reduce consumption, but to sustain their work effort. Ron Parish's response to this is that uh, the younger and future generations in the global north will need to content themselves with less material consumption than what our generation could get away with. To make this fact acceptable to them, indeed to make them embrace their future enthusiastically in spite of this fact, one needs to offer them a realistic utopia. The emancipatory idea of an unconditional basic income must feature at the core of such a realistic utopia. An emancipatory basic income is some, an income that affords real freedom, or in Carl Weidekwist's phrase, the freedom to say no, the freedom to form your own communities for work and living. UBI must therefore be high enough to make good on this promise. Um, question I have here is whether a UBI at the poverty line would be high enough. I'm not going to try to answer that, but I will simply point out that even um, a UBI pitched at, let's say, $12,000 per person per year, uh, for most people will still um, leave them seeking meaningful and useful work. Um, Two points I want to make, first of all, is that work time reduction is compatible with sustaining overall work effort. First of all, if it's combined with work sharing, you can have fewer hours per person, but the same overall hours worked if you bring more people into employment. Work time reduction um, can also be, be facilitated through productivity improvements while maintaining the same level of work effort. As Juliet Shore has pointed out, um, a four-day work week can be as productive as a five-day work week with many environmental health and social benefits. Um, 
Those global transfers I was talking about, which by the way, can include a small global basic income to reduce extreme poverty and to stimulate demand for necessities can also include um, subsidies, include subsidies for imports of green energy infrastructure and lead to new employment in the manufacturing countries. Second point I wanna make is we need to look a little more closely at the distribution of wealth, income and emissions. Emissions reductions in the global north should not and need not fall on the most vulnerable there. An ecological basic income need not be part of an austerity agenda. As most of you who are familiar with this hourglass symbol know, uh, the richest 10% globally receive over half of global income. Wealth is even more unequally distributed. And carbon emissions track pretty closely with income. The top 10% of emitters are responsible for nearly half of global emissions, while the bottom 50% are responsible for only 12% of global emissions. Um, therefore, as Chancel um, Piketty and others have argued, the burden of emissions cuts by 2030 can and should fall on the more affluent, both in rich countries and in emerging countries. Um, in the United States, for example, to reduce emissions by half by 2030, the top 10% need to reduce their emissions by about 90%, the middle 40% by about half, but the bottom 50% are already about where they need to be. Um, and to use India by way of contrast, uh, the bottom 90% have some room to increase emissions, although the top 10% still would need to, to decrease their emissions. Um, now, how to bring about um, responsibility on behalf of the, um, the wealthiest? Well, uh, Chancel Piketty et al. argue that we should shift tax from consumption to assets. They propose a 10% tax on the value of carbon assets, which would raise about $100 billion a year, and it would also discourage investment in those assets. But more importantly, they argue for a 1% to 3% progressive wealth tax on, on millionaires, uh, which would uh, raise in, uh, revenue at the amount of 1.7% of global income, and that's in the ballpark of what is needed for mitigation uh, on a world scale. Uh, so to conclude, emissions reductions will require carbon pricing and dividends, and therefore a partial UBI. Public investments will be needed in green alternatives. There will also need to be reduced consumption in wealthy countries, and there need to be massive cash transfers to the global south. Uh, the reduced consumption can continue with green production. Um, a full UBI should support more efficient, more freely chosen, and more sustainable work. The reduced consumption should be primarily by the upper 50%, and especially the top 10%, uh, imposed through wealth and asset taxes. Work time reduction is possible with work sharing, productivity gains, and continued work effort. Question I want to close with is, will there be enough resources left after the costs of energy transition for a full and emancipatory UBI? Thanks for listening. Well, thanks, Professor. Mighty complex questions that lead to complex solutions. 
I'm not confident that we're ever going to get there. Anyway, thanks for joining me on Climate Conversations. That's the end of this episode. But until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends.